again, another contact with a company that for about the last five years, I want really nothing to do with. And even how I got to know this company, I feel like they kind of conned me because my wife and I, we were in Florida with our children and we had a friend that came out with us. And that friend, after she had kind of watched our children through Monday through Friday, she wanted to go out and so we left it up to her to decide, and she decided she wanted to go to this winery she heard about close to Orlando. Now, I know immediately a, a pastor talking about wineries scandalizes some people, but we just went through the books of 1 Timothy and Titus, so I'm hoping you remember it's okay for a pastor to drink wine in moderation. And I really felt kind of, I guess, the, the vernacular, the mod, more modern vernacular is pumped by this company because... They took me around on this tour, and they told me about the great history of this winery. And I'm a, I'm a sucker for history. And, and, you know, they even had photos of the great-great-great-grandpappy who started the winery, and, and he had just wanted wine in Florida. And at the end of the tour, even before he tried the wine, they had this little email sign-up sheet that must have had in the small print somewhere that you can never opt out. They'll never respect the fact that you say unsubscribe and email them and say, I don't want any more contact. But I signed up for the email list. And since that point, I kid you not, this week, yet again, I got an email. And, and I finally tasted this wine in Florida, and it was so awful. It was the worst wine I've ever had in my life. And I'm not like this wine snob. Good wine to me is the tough kind of botched wine that they sell at Trader Joe's in any state outside of Pennsylvania. Fox wine in Pennsylvania. So, but this wine was just awful. It was terrible. It wasn't bad. It was the worst wine I've ever tasted in my life, bar none. And I remember getting back from this trip, and I had a friend who, who helps out farmers improve their yield, improve their crops, and I asked him, why was the wine so bad? Why was it so terrible? And he said to me, and this has always stuck with me. Because what he was saying was actually far more than just talking about wine. He said, Kevin, simply put, great grapes need to be starved of water from time to time. Once again, great grapes need to be starved of water from time to time. There's a lot of wisdom in what my friend was saying. That's why, for instance, areas that experience drought, like California, can produce better grapes than what would seem like a far better climate in central Florida, a tropical climate with plenty of rain. Um, it would seem that the grapes would be better, but it's actually those droughts, those moments where the grape is longing that the grape improves. And I start there because this passage will show us the wisdom of this principle in the story of Jacob. Jacob, in this chapter, is going to overtly have four life-changing moments that we directly read about, but there's actually a fifth that I will tell you about, also going on in the background here. The first of which is the death of a spouse. The second of which is the birth of a new son. Third of which is the betrayal of his eldest son and his concubine. And the fourth is the death of his father. 
one of them would be an overwhelming life experience, not to mention, and you're just going to have to kind of take my word for it, the Bible doesn't always tell us the story in a full timeline. Actually, between the events of his eldest son betraying him and the death of his father is the story of Joseph that will take up chapters 37 to 50. That story actually initiates itself between those two final events that are given to us in chapter 35. And I think Jacob is one of those guys who I think if we had met, this mama's boy, sometimes timid, sometimes weak kind of man, we would have liked Esau better. But I really grow to love Jacob in chapter 35. That's when the grape that is Jacob really enhances its flavor in the face of such hardships. Jacob is a living example that the growth of our faith often comes through hard suffering. Jacob's lifestyle is nothing short of, if you actually step back and think about it, Job-like qualities. It, he knew suffering like few in the biblical record ever knew. He was a man who often had affliction after affliction raining down on him. And while early on in Jacob's story, he wasn't the mature grape. He wasn't ready for harvest. He grows into it over time. And in chapter 35, it's evidence of this fact. Though these seasons of hardship used by the power of God seem bad at first, Jacob's faith is refined and fermented in this moment. And hopefully in our seeing God bless Jacob in such a way, we become wiser on how God at times will bless us as well. We struggle to believe really that simple truth will be shown in Jacob's story today. And the simple truth boils down to this, that when God's grace and our tears blend together in this life, God produces always a yield, a harvest, a richer, more mature faith in us. When we have the wisdom to understand that in suffering we can enter into a fuller life that is worthy of us being called Christians, of being called little Christ. It was Christ through his suffering who blessed us, and we also can be blessed in our own suffering. It makes us a different kind of grace. And it can, if we grab a hold of this truth, it can resolve a great deal of life's anxieties. We are not to be the grave of central Florida, inundated with blessings, all manner of blessings of weather and temperature. No, we are actually to be the people who God tends to need to nourish our souls in, in times and in seasons of life where we are refined in the winters and in the falls of life. It's in those seasons of scarcity that we can actually, in, in the roots of our faith, find access to those heavenly waters that the unbeliever cannot reach and cannot tap into. And so we start there. We start there admitting that while we think it would be better to be a grave in a place, in a locale that never faces hardship, the passage will testify to us a more nuanced truth that developing Christ-like character only takes root when adversity and hardship and sorrow are a part of the fertilizer of our faith. Our passage begins in verse 16 with the pregnant woman journeying somewhere within the vicinity of Ephraim. And though the nation of 
Israel, when it moves into this area, as verse 19 will, will remind us, as though they will remain in Bethlehem, it was named this at the time. Actually, it's one of Caleb's descendants, uh, Salma, who will rename the city to Bethlehem. So we have a traveling pregnant woman, somewhat within the vicinity of what would become Bethlehem. And that should perk the interest of all of our ears, because that sounds, at the start of it, a little bit like a story that would take place 2,000 years later. And yet there's a unique problem in this traveling woman's pregnancy. Both at the end of verse 16 and the start of verse 17, this labor is twice called hard. Now this isn't the first time a woman has been made to give birth in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, labors uh, have already been shown in this book. But the Hebrew reader would have immediately known something dire was wrong. Because the verb being used twice here is a unique one in regard to a suffering, a suffering that often brings about death. The Hebrew way of putting an explanation point on something was to say it twice. One after the other, so you remember it. The Hebrew way of putting an exclamation point on something was to say it twice. One after the other, so you remember it. See what I did there. It would have even called to the ancient reader a reminder of the curse of Eve, of chapter 3, and verse 16 and 17. And Rachel's midwife, knowing what was unfolding before her eyes, tells Rachel, do not fear, for you have another son. Because earlier in the biblical narrative, Rachel, in Genesis chapter 30, had prayed for both children in the plural, and even more specifically sons to come from her. First in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel had prayed out to God, Give me children or I'll die. Give me children or I'll die. And then 23 verses later, in Genesis 30, 24, when she receives her first son, Joseph, you, she, she really doesn't skip a beat. She, she doesn't kind of revel in the moment. She wastes no time praying immediately to God. May the Lord add to me another son. And that prayer is being answered now here in chapter 35. Rachel's receiving the second son she prayed for. But she's receiving her son in a way she does not want to have it answered. So life of Benjamin, the second son for Rachel, will cost her own life. Rachel will be a living sacrifice for this second son she so desired to give life to. It's not my story to tell, but Bruce did give me permission. But the Clydesdales know this suffering. They know this pain. Bruce's sister sacrificed her own life so she could give birth to her youngest son, forsaking cancer treatments that would have killed the baby in the womb in order that he might live. The greatest kind of sacrifice a mother can give to a child, a mother cannot give any more than this. And this moment is the first of three times, this is the literal time, that the Bible alludes to the idea that Rachel is weeping for her children. The second time will actually be in Jeremiah as the Babylonian armies are, are in this same region starting to wipe out the people of Israel soon to sack the city of Jerusalem. The idea of Rachel weeping for her children. And the third time, of course, is the one we are most familiar with. The slaughter of the innocents from that Edomite's Herod. 
who was trying to kill the descendant of Jacob, the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Rachel, through tears, aware of the cost her son's life would require, the suffering she is being made to face, tries to name the baby in this moment, Ben-Oni, which means in the Hebrew, the son of my suffering. Or it could be translated, the son of my misfortune. Rachel, as she's about to die, it's understandable in her pain, is not able to see how God will work this out in the barren field for his own glory. And she only sees suffering at hand. Rachel is weeping and she does not understand that, the greater redemption, that, that there is a greater redemption that can be had through the hardship. And yet Jacob understands something. And before Rachel dies, he knows that God so spiritually in the moments that have that mixture, that sacred mixture of both God's grace and our tears, both love and sorrow. God is a God who loves the pain in the contrast of life. I remember one time growing up, I had a friend's father, and he bought this awful painting. You know, the kind that has like two colors on it. It seems like, uh, you know, a kindergartner could have drawn it between bites of snack time at, at school. And, and he was so impressed by it. He wanted me to compliment him. And I just, I don't know. Jose Mazzano did not have good taste in, in, in art. And I just, I just kind of, yeah, really nice. We don't really like paintings like that. If you are one of those weird people who likes paintings like that, I don't know what's wrong with you, but God is a God who paints with contrast. God uses the color palette of our life and the variety of experiences to create in it a fuller, richer picture that we would never have with only one kind of palette, one kind of painting palette. That's how God works. So Jacob, knowing this, refuses to call his newborn son the son of my suffering or misfortune. He names him Benjamin, actually changing the name of the child, this newborn babe to the son of my good fortune, the son of my right hand, or even the son of my honor. So Jacob renames him, ministering and doing so to his dying wife by expressing an enduring hope to her before she dies. And then Rachel dies. This woman who was the love of Jacob's life. There's no denying that. It's hard to, in the Old Testament, it's hard to think of any husband who loved his wife more than Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her at first sight. He worked 14 years in order to have the honor of marrying her. And later on, even in Genesis, when we get to Genesis chapter 48, verse 7, Jacob will still remember the sorrow of this moment and the loss. How could he ever forget it? But still, he had a greater hope already planted within him. He, he wasn't a Florida grad. I know many of our own widows know of such sorrows, and yet in the face of great loss, Jacob has an incredible capacity to continue loving God in the midst of those sorrows. And that's the fruit of faith that can be found and the yield of life's droughts in the Christian life. It's a great made stronger and sweeter through those droughts. It's a faith that continues to show the capacity to trust and love God when, it, when life appears to hit what seems to be a dead end. Because we know it's a faith that knows God is a God who speaks life in the dead ends. Is that not what we celebrate on Easter? And so Rachel dies, 
and Jacob buries his bride within the vicinity of Bethlehem. And Jacob <coughs> sorry, put a pillar there to make her grave. And verse 20 basically gives us a, a later editor's note. Maybe made by Moses, but probably made by Joshua. A note that sometime later, 500 years later, I said 200 years later between last summer, I got my years wrong, but 500 years later, that the pillar for Rachel still stood. Think of when these stories were first being told to the Jews. The Jews were in Egypt, and then they were in the wilderness, and they're entering into the promised land. That's when they first hear about, you know, that's when they really hear the, the, the stories of Moses in Genesis. And think of what a blessing it would be to their faith that they could go to certain regions and see evidence for the fact that God has been good. God has been faithful to this family. He has sustained them through good times and bad. There's this gift of confirmation that these stories offer when the people would enter the promised land. And if God did this for our forefathers and foremothers, I have to wonder out loud, if just for a quick moment, how glorious heaven would be. When God will show us in the new promised land the evidences of his great love for us and sustained faithfulness for us. Next, let us notice this subtle, subtle shift that takes place from verse 20 to 21. Jacob, whom I'll still call Jacob, uh, is now being referred to by God as what is Israel right after Rachel dies. He is a fighter. Remember, as we said last week and other times, Israel at its core means God fights for you, but also it also is a reference to Jacob being a fighter as well. God's word wants us to recognize that Jacob has now fought the greatest battle he ever could fight in his life. He has lost the one in whom his soul uniquely loves, and yet in losing Rachel, he did not lose a hold of the God who still fights for him. Because God's love is greater than both human understanding and human love. Jacob has learned to trust eminently, even when he, uh, even when he cannot understand the actions of God. While it's hard to reconcile God's plans with our own to really know God, to know Him in a deep and personal way, means that when we experience personal pain, we do not lash out at Him, for we remember our God who has blessed us. We, being New Testament believers, could even take this thought one step further than our forefathers could. Our God has paid the full bride price for us upon the cross. So who would we be to lash out at Him? who has so proven his loving devotion to us as his bride. Jacob will not lash out at God at this moment. No, actually, the more we know God, the more Jacob has come to know him, we have, he has found a God who can trust both through tears and sorrows. Roots of a far deeper nature are created. A greater faith begins to mature within him, and if we follow that pathway, it will mature in us. And yet Jacob's hardship is only beginning. Jacob, within the last two chapters, had his daughter violated, feared the death uh, from the, the region after his two sons violated retribution of the matter. Then he lost a woman who would have been like a grandmother to him, his last connection kind of to that generation of Abraham, a woman who nursed even his own departed mother whom he deeply loved. And yet we reach verse 22. And we might be tempted to misunderstand the bigger picture of, going, of what's going on here. We, what we read in verse 22, I would argue, is best understood almost as a political rebellion. 
Rachel has died. We will learn this more deeply in the coming chapters, but who do the brothers worry is the most favorite son? Joseph. Here we have Reuben, the oldest son. And what is Reuben doing? He is aligning himself romantically with Jacob's concubine. He does not force himself upon this concubine, which is also interesting. The text makes that clear. And so I have to wonder if Philip, being the maidservant of Rachel, believed that when Rachel died, she would become Jacob's next great love and might have even been scorned. That is speculative. But for both of these individuals, they decide to essentially do what would have amounted to being a coup of sorts. We, we forget this, but Jacob, just in the last passage, has been promised to be the, uh, someone who will be in the line of kings. Kings will come from him. And also, he's a receiver of the messianic promise, the, the messianic promise that begins the Bible in, in chapter 3, after sin falls into the world. And so he even has the promise of the king of kings coming from his line. And he knows this. And the sons know this. And the sons want this for themselves. And so this eldest son, in this moment, is essentially, I believe, not just committing an act of sin with a concubine of Jacob's, but he is actually leading a rebellion. Also to know in this and to note in this, this is a time before Mount Sinai. The patriarchs fall into the patterns of the sexual sins of their society, and those sexual sins were often uh, polygamy and multiple wives. What are the sins that we fall into in our own day, not following the pattern of God's uh, wisdom, but our own, and the world's wisdom? So Reuben basically begins an affair with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah, the mother of two of his half-brothers. And she is compliant with the affair. And so this Jacob, this Israel, whose line will be the line of kingmakers and whom the king of kings will come from, is betrayed by those who want such power for themselves and seek to establish it in their own works. And the pain of this betrayal is unfathomable. It's beyond the specter of most human comprehension, thankfully. The embarrassment, the shame. Even I even thought about the fact that Simeon and Levi, in the previous chapter, when their sister was violated, sought revenge, and nobody rises up against Reuben to protect the honor of their father for this great offense. And so Jacob is shown to be long-suffering. Jacob does not lash out. Jacob does not strike back. And I really don't know what to do with grace like this. I don't even know what to say about Jacob in this moment except for the fact that he is no longer Jacob, but he's Israel. And he knows that God fights for him in the midst of life's sorrows. Nothing seems to be able to ultimately prevail over him in order to get him to denounce the God whom he adores. And you see now why Jacob displays so many Job-like qualities. He is no longer anxious in the Lord or murmuring against the Lord. His trust of God is nothing short of awe-inspiring. How are you, Christian, when it comes to trusting God? Do you call yourself diligent? Do you have 
that spiritual gift of being able to have all kinds of evils in this life fall upon you, the pain of this life coming at you, tearing at you, trying to scourge at your very soul. And you have the steadfast faith to be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The true pillar of this chapter is not the pillar that was put upon Rachel's grave, but the pillar of Jacob's now called Israel's faith in the Lord God Almighty. And then a list of sons' names is given. Decades upon decades upon decades earlier, Jacob had left the promised land only with a staff and a fear that he would be killed. And now he has come back into the region. A man blessed with 12 sons and many daughters. And he has been blessed by the Lord. And he has wealth and he has acquired so much blessing. And yet, most of all, he has a truly unshakable faith. All things he did not have when he had first departed from the land. What a blessing that is to have a faith like that. It's the most valuable thing a Christian in the trials of this life can have, and we often forget about it. An unmovable faith granted by a greater maturing of our faith by the seasons that God has put before our life and the pathway that he has us walk. It's the blessing I want for all those I love beyond any other, and it should be all of our desires. And then the passage closes on Jacob's father. And we can recognize even that Jacob had a faith greater than his father, his own father Isaac, because what set in motion the course of Jacob's life? It was the fact that a great many decades earlier, Isaac thought he was imminently dying, and he believed he would he needed to pass on the covenant blessing, and he didn't want to pass it on to the child that God told him to pass it on to. And so uh, he tried to bless it, uh, bless his favored child, Esau. And yet, did Isaac soon after die? No, at the end, as the end of this chapter reveals, the onset of his blindness that caused him to believe he was going to die was in one sense not an illustration of his imminent demise, it was actually an illustration to the degree of immaturity in Isaac's relationship with God. And ironically, um, because ironically, he was not soon to die. He was not following the pattern of God and that God had set out for him. Jacob, on the other hand, is one in whom the word, God's word upholds uniquely and distinctively. I wonder how many times Jacob was consumed with fear he would have cried himself to sleep at night, or in pain, and just the awful feeling of utter forsakenness. And yet Jacob, in chapter 35, has grown to a greater maturity, a greater wisdom, not easily received, but earned through a faithful perseverance in the hardships of life. God used the adversity of Jacob's life, maturing Jacob, character traits that would only come through that adversity. Dear Christian, I wish I could tell all of us that the Lord only teaches us through the providence of joy, or the providence of love, or the providence of goodness and laughter and blessings in this life. But God, again, he paints with more vivid contrast upon the canvases of our life. As we talked about earlier, we are wise to learn that suffering can help bring about some of the greatest uh, faith that will ever mature from us in this life. When life comes at us and crosses and crossroads, there is an opportunity for us to truly bloom. God never wastes our pain. 
So let us not accuse him of doing such when we find ourselves experiencing it. Let us truly trust God in the midst of that pain. Which means we have to accept him to do with it what he wills. And however it pleases him or for whatever purpose. And so Jacob now stands, decades later, in the final verse, at the grave of his father. And notice who is there to bury Isaac with him. He was his brother Esau, the brother whom he feared. He feared more than death at one point in his life. This is actually the last we will ever see Esau within the narrative of Scripture. From then on, we'll only see him in genealogies, or talked about uh, theologically by the prophets and also the Apostle Paul. But the great enemy of Jacob, Esau, the enemy that he thought would be the end of him, the death of him, the brother who caused him to flee in sheer terror, Notice, Jacob is no longer afraid of him. When you draw closer to God, you realize in that experience you have less and less to truly worry about and fear. What enemies, what, that, what enemies might you and I not need to be as afraid of right now that if we sought the Lord more diligently? Jacob has a new wisdom. He has watched the God who goes before him and his enemies, and it continues to deliver him through it all. And yet the most convincing evidence of God's loving endurance in the face of suffering is ultimately not found in Jacob's story, but it is found in the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the son who came to suffer he was not the reason for our suffering. Our suffering was brought about by our own sin, but he was, as Isaiah put it, the suffering servant for our sake. He came to endure the annoying, as the Hebrew puts it, suffering of life. And yet that endurance and suffering served a greater purpose so that he could become the Benjamin of us, the son of good fortune, the son of great blessing, the good the better Benjamin. That is who Christ is. That is what his cross was for. And that is our inheritance. And as we follow him, we see the wisdom in suffering. Yes, it, it comes with hardships and trials. It comes with difficulty and sorrows and sadness. Even our Lord cried. And yet through it all, a greater fruit of faith is produced. And we can enter into a far greater maturity when handling life's fears. And through it all, he also one day, through such a simple faith, will usher us into a new promised land. One in which there will be no barrenness. There will be no death and sorrow. For he paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, so often we look at situations in our life and we doubt you. We cry out to you in different ways. How can something like giving growth you? Help us to receive a more mature faith. Help us to receive a deeper understanding. 
Help us to see in the contrast a beautiful picture of our life that our Lord has prepared for us and painted for us and allowed us to walk in. Let us be faithful servants with a new name that guides us and leads us. That being the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.